great to be here with you this morning, and great to have Tyler. I wish Victoria could be here. I don't think she wants to be here with us. I think she's happy up at Bob Jones, uh, but we are glad to be here with you. Give you a quick update on what's happening in Yucatan. Looks like I'll be back there in January. Um, obviously, with Tyler being in his senior year, we were supposed to be back through the end of July, beginning of August. That didn't work out because of COVID. And so now we will be, I will be heading back there in January and don't know the exact time frame. I have a baseball clinic tentatively set up for February. Um, so I don't know if I'll go in in January and stay for, for six weeks or what, how I'll do that. Then I'll come back home here uh, to Bradenton, be home for a week or so, then turn around and go back. I know it's not ideal to leave the family here and make that trip back and forth, but uh, uh, COVID has definitely thrown a monkey wrench into our missions plan, and right now that's the, uh, the direction that we're heading. So a lot of things are moving ahead in the Yucatan. How many saw in the headlines the, uh, the hurricanes that came through? Uh, most of those passed to the north of the city of Medida, which is where we are ministering, but they did not pass to the north of the Mayan villages. So the Mayan villages got a lot more rain. I showed Beth and uh, Tyler last night a picture. There's this bridge. We've actually done this color run, and, and we've done bike races, and we go down Paseo de Montejo and underneath this like underpass, oh, and uh, it's completely filled with water. You can't even drive uh, down the main stretch there in, uh, in the capital city of Medida. Well, the farmers that are out in the Mayan villages, they have been inundated with rain. And if you remember correctly, there was a flood that came through back in March, and April as well. And so they lost 90% of their crops then. So kind of waiting to hear back and see exactly what has happened out there in the villages. The food relief was basically done for COVID-19. Uh, but boy, God worked that all together where uh, now we're able to take that out there even after the hurricanes have come through. So I know your church is going to make a donation to the Mayan food relief. We appreciate all those again. Man, I, it's been neat to me to see. I rode bikes yesterday with some guys. They're not believers. We went to San Antonio and rode those rolling hills that are in San Antonio. And uh, they, they've given to the Mayan food relief. It's just been neat for me to see how God has put us in contact with different people, even saved and unsaved, and how they're contributing and helping uh, toward that need there. So our original thought was that we would make it last until like October, end of this month. Now it looks like we're going to be giving food bags all the way up until Christmas, which I know will be a big blessing uh, to the people there. So uh, have tracks. We're using the check tracks. Uh, they seem to work very well in the villages. And we put one of those in with each food bag and take those out to the villages. I think to date we've delivered about 3,500 food bags and uh, this last month alone, we had $8,200 that came in for food bags. And so God is just abundantly blessing. And uh, we're able to get the food and put it in the bags and take it out there. Obviously, Dad and Mom are down there now, and they're spearheading that. And it's just been a tremendous blessing. That was not a project that we had on the calendar. Actually, we're supposed to do the back-to-school project right about now. Uh, but uh, they're not even going back to school. In the, in the villages now, they're going to school on television, and some of the people don't have television in their house, so I don't know how that's necessarily working out. Uh, but the, the Yucatan definitely has, their economy has struggled greatly throughout COVID-19. Churches just opened on the 4th of October, and so they have, uh, they have definitely gone through a difficult transition there. Uh, and uh, appreciate your prayers for them and your participation uh, as we move ahead with the ministry that God's given to us. Thinking about... 
speaking today. Oh, by the way, at the close of the service, if you get one of our prayer cards, the QR code that's on the back of this is for our family. It is not for the Mayan food relief. And so the, the QR code, that didn't make, don't want to make it uh, commu- uh, confusing, but we have one that's for the Mayan food relief, and then we have another one that's for our family. But if you get one of our prayer cards, don't confuse that. That's not for the Mayan food relief. But thinking, I've been thinking a lot about missions, especially during COVID-19. Uh, a lot has changed for our family. A lot is changing in the world of missions. And so I started penning some thoughts on changing missions in changing times. Yesterday, I went on a bike ride. Now, I haven't been on a bike ride much at all. Um, I did that ride for the, for the Jamaican orphanage in, in May where we did the 453-mile bike ride. And after that, I just fell off the bike, literally, and haven't been riding hardly at all. And so yesterday, or actually Friday, a guy, a friend of mine, and a safe friend from Bradenton said, hey, are you in town this weekend? I've traveled up to Georgia or Tennessee every weekend since the beginning of August. Uh, this is the first weekend I've had off, uh, besides when Tori, uh, we took Tori back to college. Um, and so uh, I've been gone every weekend. I haven't been able to bike ride. He goes, why, why don't you come with us and ride in a place called San Antonio? I go, Alan, I will come, but you need to know I have not been riding my bike. I am not in bike fitness. He goes, oh, even on your worst day, you can keep up with us. I thought, I'm telling you, I have not been bike riding. Well, they found out very soon in the ride yesterday that I could not keep up. I got dropped I don't know how many times in this ride. So we're coming down this hill. I don't know. I've never been to this place before. I've never rode there. We're coming down the hill, and I was just focused on passing the next guy in front of me, right? And so I didn't recognize that the majority of the guys peeled off to the left. And so I'm going up this hill, and I'm already committed and I'm going up the hill, and all of a sudden, all these guys that are in front of me start U-turning and going back down the hill. I'm like, what are they doing? Then I figured out, I got to the top of the hill, nobody was in front of me. And I was like, oh, this is not good, you know, because I don't know where I'm at. So I U-turned and went down to the bottom of the hill, went right. Then I come to an intersection where I got to go right or left. And I, I mean, there, and I have no clue where I'm at. I'm going to tell you, I didn't make the proper change of direction, and I ended up pedaling by myself for a long time yesterday in the middle of nowhere because I was completely disconnected from the main group of cyclists. Well, I think the same thing applies in missions. I think that we're disconnected many times about really what's happening in the world, and we're disconnected about how we can have a viable effort in missions that is moving us ahead. Here's what one author said. He said, change is the only constant in life. Confucius said, only the wisest and stupidest of people never change. So growth is painful. Change is painful. But nothing is as painful as staying where you do not belong. Now, I want to be clear this morning. I'm not talking about changing doctrine. I'm not talking about changing the core principles that we embrace as Christians and translate into the missions endeavors that we do. But I am talking about looking at how we do missions and always being willing to ask the question, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing right? What can I do better? Now, sadly, as I associate with missionaries and mission organization and churches, I think there's a fair number in my opinion, who just think that the way we do it is fine, that there's no room for improvement. Beth, do I have any room for improvement as a husband? Don't answer that. 
How, we know the answer to that. Wouldn't it be a pretty terrible relationship if we never felt like we had room for improvement? I don't ever think that we've arrived. I think we've always had something to learn, and we need to be students of whatever that we're doing in life, and that includes missions. Now, the passage that came to mind to me was Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. Would you turn with your, me to Joshua 3? Here we have the children of Israel going into the promised land. Now, I don't have time to unpack the whole context because there's a lot to the context, but you know, you remember that? How many men went to spy on Canaan? How many? Initially. Twelve men. How many were good? Two. How many were bad? Did you know the song, right? I went in the bathroom this morning. I'm thinking about that song, and they want me to sing happy birthday in the bathroom. I was like, no, I'm thinking about 12 men went to spy on Canaan. I don't, did you see that? How many of you sing happy birthday in the bathroom? How many of you do it? It's in there. It says in the men's bathroom, I'm supposed to be singing happy birthday. I was like, no, I can't. It doesn't go with my message for today. Well, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad. Two were good. So here is the nation of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness because they disobeyed and they didn't trust God. They thought they knew better. So we have Joshua and Caleb. Moses didn't even. He saw it from afar, but he did not even get to go into the promised land. So here's Joshua with a younger generation besides Caleb. Right, you get the picture? Because the other generation had died off before they could actually go into the promised land. They are on the they are on the shore of the Jordan River. They are getting ready literally to pass over and, 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 and take the land that God has given. You know, in chapter 2, we have the spies that went in and Rahab hit on I mean, You know the whole story, how it's unpacked. Well, here in chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host. And they command the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and Levites bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Verse 4. Yet there should be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits. Now, we don't use cubits today, but that's 1,000 yards. That's quite a distance between them and the ark of the covenant. Come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which you must go, if you have not passed this way hitherto for. Now, I know we don't use that terminology today. I have not come this way hitherto for. That's just a way of saying you've not gone this way before. This is a first-time experience for you. By the way, understand the context of verse 4. Is, listen, God's presence is what gives us direction. It's God. It's the kind of glory of God. His glory that will chart out for us where we need to trod. And Joshua, verse 5, said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Changing missions and changing time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. As I sat here this morning and sang, and then Tyler and I were talking during the service just of the changes that I've noticed and he notices in the church. And what, a, what an honor and a privilege for us to be associated with this church, with these dear people. Uh, thank you for Peter and Natalie, uh, for their friendship, for their family, for the blessing and the encouragement they are to us. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and for a brief time to listen to instruction from your word. Now, I know 
that oftentimes I get between you and your people, or I try to get between you and your people. I, I know that many times it's easy for me to say things that are not guided and directed by your spirit, but come from the flesh. So this morning I'm asking Holy Spirit through me and through your word that you would speak clearly, that you would give us sustenance, that we would apply, and that you would help us when it, as it relates to being missional, that we would have a desire to see the gospel go out, people discipled, churches planted, and pastored by nationals that are moving ahead with the work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thinking of changing missions and changing times. So here's my list. And, and by the way, I've, I've made a lot of chicken scratch notes even this morning, even some as I was sitting there as I continue to chew, chew it over. But here's my current list, and it might change as I move ahead. But number one, we need to place a premium on discipline, on discipline. You say, what do you mean? It says here in verse one, and Joshua rose, what does it say? Early in the morning. Now, I believe that everything we do in missions, we have to lay a foundation upon which they, the nationals, can continue to build. I would never, if I was a pastor, and I'm not, I would never support a missionary who wasn't radically involved with nationals. I have no desire to see missionaries build their own kingdoms and, and build it so large that when they get to the end of their life, they can't hand the baton of leadership over because no national can take it over. I don't think that's viable missions work. You say, that's your opinion. It is my opinion, but I have a very strong opinion on it. I think we have to lay that foundation. The missionary must be dispensable. And the nationals must move ahead with the work. Now, I know, depending where you minister in different parts of the world, logistically, that takes on a different framework. So we were working toward the possibility of doing even uh, some consultant work in Egypt, in the church planting work that went on there. The individual that was there passed away and left the ministry. He didn't leave it in good hands. And so now it is tanking. It was great that it went ahead when he was here. It is deplorable that it's dying now because it didn't have to do that. So understand, we have got to focus on what it takes to have others behind us who are carrying on the baton of leadership. So when Joshua arose early in the morning, we see this key ingredient of discipline. We've got to be disciplined ourselves as servants of the Lord. But we've got to teach these nationals how to be disciplined, how to live a disciplined life. self Discipline is a key ingredient to success. Do you know why you don't exercise? Because you're not disciplined. Do you know why we gain weight? Because not disciplined. Do you know why our marriages fall apart? Because not disciplined. Do you know why we aren't where we need to be spiritually and we walk in the flesh and not in the spirit? Because we're not disciplined in our quiet timeline. You say, are you attacking me? Oh, I'm telling you. Do you know why I'm so sore in my legs this morning? You know why? Because I haven't been exercising like I need to. And because I've been drinking Dr. Pepper. By the way, which I love very much. But that's not discipline. Last night, Beth said, can we get something to drink after we went to Kohl's? I said, sure, but you know, we'll have to go back to the hotel, get the car, and then go, you know, go, some, go someplace. So we pull in to, what was the name of that place we pulled into? The gas station? Huh? Speedway. Okay. We pulled in there, and she goes, what do you want to drink? I go, oh, man, I already had Dr. Pepper today after I finished that bike ride. 
I go, I probably shouldn't. She goes, well, what do you want me to get you? And I go, I'll just go ahead and get me whatever you want. She knew what that meant. What do you think she came back with? What do you think she came back with? Dr. Pepper. Hey, but by the way, I've, I've shown a little bit of discipline because I haven't drank it yet. It's still in the car. I'm going to drink it today, probably going home. But you know what? Self-discipline is the key ingredient to life. And I don't want to get so focused on exercise and so focused on diet that that's what we think our focus is. I'm, I'm talking about working with nationals and us ourselves being disciplined spiritually. How many of us can say that during COVID-19, with more time in our hands, we drew closer to God in our quiet time? For how many of us were more focused on what was happening externally or what we wished was happening externally instead of taking the time to root ourselves in God's word? Oh God, you are my God, early will I seek you, said the psalmist. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Now, remember Joshua in Exodus 33, I think it is? Do you remember when Moses went into the tabernacle and came out of the tabernacle? Doesn't the Bible say that Joshua, the son of Nun, continued there? He stayed in the tabernacle. He continued. He lingered in God's presence. So, we got to place this premium on discipline. I keep under my body. I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So we need spiritual discipline. I think we really like to show off everything we do, and we really live in a kind of a showy age, no? I mean, I'll I, I tell you something. Bike riders can be some of the showiest individuals you've ever met. I say that as being one of them. But you pull into the parking lot yesterday, and they all got new paint schemes on their bike. And, you know, Nick's got a bike that he just paid $7,000 for. And this other guy bought a, a wheel set that's $4,500. And then on the back of their windows, they have down, you know, they did 13.1 or they did how many triathlons or what. I mean, they always got to broadcast it. You know what? The truth is, by the way, Nick's a great guy. I'm not picking on him. He's a, he's a great friend. But here's what I've noticed, too. Christian-wise, it seems, almost seems like spiritually we've got to talk about what we're doing spiritually. Have you noticed that? Well, it's called quiet time for a reason. We're not supposed to be screaming to others when we're doing it. So I don't have to go on Facebook and say, look how spiritual I am because I just posted on there that I read my Bible this morning. No, it's a spiritual discipline where I am alone getting together with God. It's in secret. I'm not telling everybody. I'm not broadcasting. So we're just telling these nationals, find a place, a quiet place where you can get away daily with God. But it's steady. It's steady. I'm not just doing it hit or miss. If we were to raise our hand, and we're not going to do it, how many of us find it difficult to be steady with our devotional life? To be steady in prayer. To be steady in diving into God's word. But then I'll, when I think about discipline, especially in the context of missions, I think about it socially. You say, what do you mean by social? Have you ever met people in ministry that said, I'm not a people person? Have you heard somebody say that in ministry? You know how many pastors I've heard say they're not people, per people persons? You know what I say? Get out of ministry. Leave. Because ministry is all about people. So teaching these nationals and us ourselves not becoming more isolated, not withdrawing from people, but learning how to have interaction with people, social discipline. Yesterday we went on this bike ride, 
And there, I, at the end of the ride, I felt so bad. I mean, like body-wise, I was done. And, and they wanted to go out and get some pizza. So we went out and got some pizza. And can I tell you something? When we're there and I'm having conversations and I'm around unsaved people, it's nice when they know who you are, but it's always nice when one of the guys takes initiative to break, break the ice. So Alan speaks up and goes, by the way, for those of you who don't know, this is Jeff. He hasn't been riding much lately, but he used to ride with us all the time. And you can't cuss in front of him. He's a preacher. Well, it was a little socially awkward when he introduced me at that fashion, sitting around the, the table and we're eating pizza. But you know what? The ability for unsaved people to fellowship with Christian people and Christian people to unsaved, uh, fellowship with unsaved people without sinning, without crossing the line, I sometimes see that missing. If we're going to be effective in ministry, we had better learn how to have some social discipline. We'd better learn how to penetrate the darkness with the light of Jesus Christ at the same time without compromising our stand for Christ. You will never always be motivated. Therefore, you have to learn to be disciplined. Boy, Joshua, he was disciplined. He arose early in the morning. But then secondly, place a premium on delegation. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host and they command the people saying, now, listen, I'm not trying to be snarky, but can, can you see this? You know what most guys would have done? They would have gone through the host. They wouldn't have sent somebody else. This is the big day. I mean, they've waited 40 years for this. They're getting ready to go in and conquest the land. I mean, take over the land. Joshua didn't go through the people. You see that? He sent others. He delegated to others. Maxwell said this, listen, if somebody can do something, 80% as well as you delegate it to them. And I'll tell you what, missions, I would say if somebody can do something, 50% as well as you delegate it to them. Delegate it to them. We can't fear failure. We're going to fail. We don't want to set people up for failure, but in delegation and giving people tasks to do, there's going to be times that they're not able to do it exactly like it needs to be done or even like we would have done it. But as we're moving ahead in missions, we have got to delegate. We've got to learn the art of delegation. I was talking to you about that missionary in Egypt. And his own pastor up in the Georgia area told me about him. He said to me, he was probably the greatest missionary I ever knew. But he was the worst leader. Think of that. He was the greatest missionary. He's the worst leader. Why? Because the ministry is tanking now. Because he didn't learn the art of delegation. I, I, I don't know the guy's motives. I don't know if he was a dictator. I don't know if he was on a power trip. I don't know if he just didn't know how to delegate, but he didn't get the job done. And now the ministry is falling apart daily. So what are we going to do if we're going to delegate? And Joshua obviously learned from Moses. You remember Moses' father-in-law came to him and said, man, you're going you're gonna to die. You're going to wear away because you're sitting there from sunup to sundown, and all you're doing is you're the only one counseling the people. Choose you out men who can help you. So we got to chart out what we will delegate. we got to choose somebody that is teachable, not somebody that knows it all. Somebody is teachable and can do the task. we got to clearly define the responsibility, but we got to create an, a, a culture of accountability and follow-up. So you know what I see in the church? When we need a position field many times, we just put it in the bulletin and say, hey, we need somebody to do this. We give them the task. We're like, man, you're on your own. Do it. That's not delegation. 
That's not delegation. Delegation is coming alongside of people and equipping them to do the task. Now, I've said this many times. In Mexico, I seldom preach now. Everything's changed from the way we first did ministry. I seldom preach, if ever preach. Why? Because if the nationals are going to do the work of the ministry when we're not there, they have to do the work of the ministry when we're there. And we don't want to create a culture in the church where the people think that we don't have confidence in the national pastors or that we can do it better than they can. That's failure. So we sit under their preaching. And by the way, we get fed by them. And there's sometimes we don't get fed by them. But that's all part of the process of delegating it out to them. I was looking in Scripture and saw this morning in my devotional time that this passage in chapter 3, man, it, it's, it's mentioned several times, and we see the art of delegation in Joshua. Do you remember when he sent the spies into the land? By the way, he didn't send 12. How many do you think he sent? Two. And don't you believe he learned from his past experiences? Don't you believe that he took careful thought and prayer into choosing the right two guys to go in there. And then there's another passage here where it says the same thing again. Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying. So Joshua was getting instruction from God. Joshua was taking that instruction and giving it to the officers, and they were giving it to the people. He was not on a power trip. He would not fit in with many of the ministry and missionary enterprises that we do today because he wasn't looking to be front and center. It wasn't about him building his kingdom. It was about him pouring into others and, by the way, into a younger generation. They were younger than him. So they could do the work of the ministry. And I think it's interesting in verse 17 of chapter 1 where he was talking to the two and a half tribes that were staying on the other side of the Jordan. He said, I remember, guys, you got to go in and help us conquer the land. And they said to him, the Lord be with thee as he was with Moses. They were following him as he was following God. Because he learned how to deal with people and delegate tasks to them. But then thirdly, place a premium on discernment. Now it says here, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and Levites bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there should be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it. So discernment. Now in the Yucatan now, we have something very interesting that we deal with because we're in Mayan villages. Well, that's new for us. I don't even speak Mayan language. I picked up some of the cuss words, though. You, know, you always imagine, it's amazing in, in the languages that you learn how the bad words always stick, but you can't remember the Bible verses, the good verses. You gotta, the good words, you've got to spend a long time on those. But I don't know a lot of Mayan. And I certainly am learning the Mayan culture and, and how they think and how they process. But they do things different. So if we would have planted churches in the village now with Project 510, which is planting five churches in the next 10 years, like we planned them in the city, we would probably be at a great disadvantage. One of the things in the Mayan culture is if you're older, you're automatically respected. Regardless of whether or not you are not somebody to be respected. So in the church, they had this guy, he had the keys to the church, literally. He wasn't the pastor, but you know he had the keys to the church and he be why? Because they viewed him as an authority just because of his age. Well, there was a problem. The problem was that when the men got in the combies and the, and the buses, the vans, um, 
on Monday morning and travel back into Medida or to Cancun to work and didn't come back until Saturday, leave their wives and kids in the village, don't send back money because a lot of them are alcoholics or spending it where they don't need to be spending it so their families are suffering, these women would single out this man in the village and come to him and say, can you give us money? He'd say, sure, but you have to give me something in exchange. You're following with me? It wasn't an ideal situation. Especially it wasn't an ideal situation in the church. But some of the people in the church were like, no, no, he is, has to be respected. Because in our culture, that's how it is. So teaching these men about discernment, teaching them how they can know God's presence, how they can know God's people, how they can know God's power. Why? Because if they can't discern that, what are they going to do when we're no longer there? I mean, it would be an insult if every decision they had to make, they had to call me or, or they had to call my dad. We actually go to them and say, what do you guys think we should do? Now, we do have opinions, but what is your thought? What is your read? What do you think would work best in the situation? Somebody said this, discernment is not merely knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. So teaching them how they can discern. Would you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God? Corey Ten Boone said discernment is God's call to intercession, never to fault finding. You know those people who are like the watchdogs for Christianity? They feel like they're going to call everybody on the carpet when they do something wrong. You know, that's, that's not what discernment is. That's being judgmental. That's crossing a line that we don't need to cross. The Bible says if you go by and you put your nose where it doesn't belong, it's like taking a dog by the ear. As soon as you let go, you're going to get bit. You're, you're in a world of hurt. So discernment is not to fault finding. It's to intercession. It's to strength. It's to following God's leading so that together we can build his church. But fourthly, I think we should place a premium on direction. I really see this with COVID-19. Verse 4 says that you may know the way by which you must go if you have not passed this way hitherto for. So we didn't know when we were going back to the field. And we're trying to make that decision. And we knew Tori was probably going back to college at BJU. But we're, you know, we had that figured out. But we didn't know where to put Tyler in school in Lakeland or if we were going to make, excuse me, in Bradenton or if we were going to make it back to the Yucatan. All of his homeschooling supplies are in the Yucatan. Well, there was no direct flights into the Yucatan. So that was an issue. I mean, how are we even going to get down there logistically? And even if we wanted to bring the stuff back and do homeschooling with them here, or do we wait and possibly get back to the Yucatan by September because it's open? So Beth and I, we're trying to figure out, where's Waldo? What are we going to do? You know, what decision? And we could not make a decision. And finally, I looked at Beth and I said, we're just going to stick him in Christian school here. She goes, do you think that's the best decision? I go, I have no idea. It just feels good to make a decision. You know, at this stage of the game, it just feels good to say, this is what we're doing. Well, obviously, God knew what was happening. And by the way, Tyler thinks COVID-19 is a blessing from God. Because he didn't have to go back to Mexico, and he's in the school here in Bradenton. He gets a senior class, and he's playing soccer. I don't know if that's necessarily the way I look at it, but he thinks it's a blessing. He's glad to be here. But, but the point is, there are times where we don't know what direction to take. Are you with me? We don't know what decision to make. Well, we've got to place a premium on how to make decisions, on which direction. I, I think I've shared this before. I'm 47, so I'm starting that Geritol flashback thing. But let me, let me just unpack this for you. So we had this pastor that was in our church 
the second church that we planted. He was a teenager. It was in a youth group, and now he's the pastor of the church. And he says to my dad, I'm going to start Awanas on Sunday morning. I get a phone call from my dad. He goes, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. He goes, who would ever start at Awana ministry on a Sunday morning? I go, Dad, that is none of our business. He is the pastor of the church. If he's prayed and talked to his people. Now, if he asked us for advice, he didn't. He called to basically tell us, hey, this is what I'm doing. He's excited about it. I said, Dad, if he fails, well, there's, you learn from your failures. Do you know that Pastor Oso, by the way, his name means bear. That's his nickname. He doesn't want to be called Luis, so we call him Pastor Oso. He has been successful with Awanas on Sunday morning. Is that what I would do? Probably not. But does it matter? No. He received direction from God and did what God directed him to do. I think if we're not careful, we stick our nose where it doesn't belong. And we micromanage people to the point where they don't have the liberty to make decisions. They need to have the freedom to make decisions. Now, we want to be available for counsel. We want to be available to speak truth in their life, and especially initially when we're pouring into these national pastors like Antonio, who just took over and taught C.B. Chin. He's new into the work, so obviously we want to pour into him. But at the same time, we want to teach them how they can make decisions. Now, you know what the older people in the church said to my dad the other day? They go, yeah, we like it better when you preach than when Antonio preaches because you have more education than Antonio has. So my dad pulled those two men aside. He goes, can I tell you a story? And I said, yeah. He goes, when I first took my pastorate in Pennsylvania, Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, I followed my dad. My dad was the pastor in the church before me. So he goes, so I came out of Dallas Theological Seminary. I was a fresh graduate. Yes, I had some education, but I didn't really have any hands-on experience in ministry. He goes, and I came in that church, he goes, and you know how many times I heard carping criticism from people in the church? Well, Pastor Carney, referring to my dad's father, wouldn't have done the ministry that way. He would have done it differently. He goes, you need to give time to him. You need to pray for him. You don't need to be negative. You need to allow him to continue to grow as a pastor so that he can lead you. So we've got to pour into people, giving them these tools that they need so they can move ahead and choose the right course of action. So Direction. We need confident leadership. Leadership with the ability to make decisions. I remember when we did these leadership training there in the Mayan villages. It's so unique because the men aren't there during the week and our pastors are all bivocational. So how do you do this? So we would do it in the evening time and we would ask them to just take a day and a half off of work and give it to them months ahead of time and then pour into them in these leadership training seminars. And they said to us, we don't have, they said to us what they heard people in the church say, we don't have what you guys have. And so we told them from the start, number one, this is not a comparison game. Number two, here's what you need. You need inductive Bible study, you need prayer and fasting, and you need the fruits of the Spirit. Because if you have those three things, everything else in life will come together. So giving them the tools that they need for confident leadership, but then courageous advancement. Joshua was leading the nation of Israel into new and uncharted territory, and boy, he was there leading them. Having a leader who not only knows the way, but a leader who shows the way. Courageous advancement, but here it is. I've got to throw it in there. Creative methodology. Wouldn't it have been easy for people to say, we didn't do it like that 40 years ago. 
That's not how Moses did it. No, creative methodology. I mean, there's some people that believe that we do ministry the way that we've done it because we've always done it that way. Well, no, we should always be looking for outside of the box, inside of the Bible ways that we can be effective in ministry. I say all the time, we do everything we can not to be present inside the walls of our church. Everything we can. Any ministry we can do outside, we want to do it outside. We believe the church goes out with the gospel and doesn't wait for people to come to us. So, so we have to be creative in our methodologies. We give away bikes for good grades in the schools. We do the baseball clinics. Uh, we do the Mayan food relief. We, we bring a chiropractor in and adjust people, and we don't adjust them in the church. We adjust them in the town plaza and get permission from the government ahead of time to be there. Not bait and switch, not come and get adjusted, then we'll cram Jesus down your throat. No, come so we can be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ and build a relationship with you so we can have the opportunity to tell you who makes a difference in our life. Creative methodology. No wind blows in the direction of a ship without direction. No wind blows in the direction of a ship without direction. Number five, place a premium on distinguishable transformation. Now look at verse five. Boy, there's so much here, and I'm, I'm skipping over a lot, but I'll give you the high points. But look here in verse five. And Joshua said unto the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Antonio, not Antonio, Esteban, Stephen, came to Christ. He came to the chiropractic clinic, got adjusted. When he got adjusted, he, we shared the gospel or gave him a track, but he invited us to his house. We went to his house, told him about Christ. He placed his faith in Christ. And we didn't really know much about him. I mean, he's, he was probably a town alcoholic or a drinker because all the guys drink, right? But we didn't know he was one of the town alcoholics. One day I'm walking down the street, and a person called out to me. It's a Thursday called out to me and said, can you put me on the same plan you put Esteban on? And I'm trying to figure out what in the world they're... You know when somebody says something to you and you're like, where are they coming from? My wife's probably thinking, I know exactly what you're talking about because that happens to me in marriage all the time. But okay, I was like, what? But I didn't want to act like I didn't know, right? So I was like, what do you mean? What are you talking about, you know? And I said, well, ever since Esteban has been around you, he's not the same person that he was before. So I said, tell me about that. They said, well, he's not drinking. He bought a truck. Now, his truck wasn't brand new, but remember, he was spending all his money on alcohol before, so now he has money to buy a vehicle, right? He's a very skilled carpenter, but he, even though he'd make money, he wasn't handling his money, right? Then he started fixing up his house. He said, hey, Jeff, look, I put this porch on the front of my house. I have my wife make flan. I invite people over to the house and give them flan and coffee, and then I tell them about Jesus. So he was like being intentional with what Christ had done. So then I looked at that person, and I go, oh, he took a pill. They go, you didn't? I go, yep. Yeah. It's called the Jesus pill. I said, because when you get Jesus in your life, he does great changes. Not only inside the church, not only where people can't see, but outwardly where people can see. You know what I see here in verse 5? Josh was saying to the people, hey, God has done great things for us. But listen, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord is going to do wonders. He's going to do miracles in you among us. So place a premium on distinguishable transformation, that people can tell that we're transformed into new creatures in Christ. The Bible was not given for our information, 
but for our transformation. Now, Antonio is the pastor of the church. Antonio has a very rough background before he came to Christ. Now, there'd be some that would say, well, that disqualifies him from ministry because it was before he came to Christ. He, he wasn't even in a church, and he had a bad upbringing as a young person. But he got saved, and, but he's always second-guessed himself because of his background before Christ. We just poured into him and said, Antonio, it's not about what you did before you came to Christ. Paul killed Christians. It's not about before. It's about after. And it's not about you bragging. It's about God showing through you what he can do when a life is submitted to him. So in Acts, we see over and over again in Acts 9, 2, 19, 9, 19, verse 23, 22, verse 4, 24, 14, I think verse 22 as well. It said they were, they were of the way. They were of the way. The Christians, the only Christians were known as people of the way. Well, that was all associated with one thing, being followers of the Messiah, being followers of Jesus Christ. You know what we need? We need leaders who show the way. Leaders who show the way. Not leaders who are perfect, not leaders who have it all together, but leaders who show the way. But then we need followers and leaders who walk in open holiness. Sanctify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, contrary to what some believe, Christ did not come to make us happy. He came to make us holy. Listen, when I want a Dr. Pepper, it's an addiction. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Peter, I know you do because you have the same thing with Coke. I know it. I've been around you far too long. I, know that's, I mean, it, when you want that, it's like you can tell, wow, that's a strong pull. I want that. And, and to say no to that, it's not the easiest thing. It's not the happy thing to do. But it's not about being happy. It's about being holy. So followers who walk in open holiness, be ye holy for I am holy. Follow peace with all men and holiness, the author of Hebrews says, without no, which no man shall see the Lord. And then lastly, a world that sees the miracles of God. We need to walk so close to Christ that when people see us, the only explanation, the only retort, Jesus. I took the Jesus pill. He's making the difference in my life. It's not me. It's Jesus. Uh, I close with this. We went uh, to a missions conference. You know, Beth was pregnant with Victoria, and it must have been April of 2000, and it's in Pennsylvania. It's a church that I grew up in where my dad was a pastor, and a guy came up to Elizabeth, a guy in the church who never liked me, but maybe, he, maybe I gave him reason not to like me. I probably did, but he came up to her, and he goes, did you marry Jeff Carney? She goes, I certainly did. He said to her, are you gullible? That's what he said. Are you gullible? She was offended. I said, well, babe, you just need to understand. I said, they don't really know me because the Jeff Carney that grew up in this town is not the Jeff Carney that's here today. And I really was a jerk. <laughs> I wasn't a good kid. I was rebellious. I did things I shouldn't have done. And some of those people just can't get over that. You know what we need to do in our life? We need to recognize that regardless of our past, it's Jesus that makes the difference. 
and it's Jesus that's continuing. Man, I have so much even currently that needs to continue to be transformed so I can be that leader that makes a difference. Changing missions and changing. I don't have all the answers. I got a lot more questions than answers. But boy, I tell you what, there's nothing more I want to do than return to the Yucatan, continue to pour into the ministry there, lay that foundation upon which they can continue to build in the future so we can move ahead. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your house this morning, for what you're teaching us as it relates to missions. I pray that we would be actively engaged in thinking biblically, in thinking together, in teamwork, so we can be more effective in your harvest field. You have given us a command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is not something that is only applicable in the States. It is not something that's only applicable in Latin America. It is not something that's only applicable in Africa. It's applicable worldwide. There's so many cultural differences, language barriers, even places now that before COVID were open and now after COVID aren't or have by and large never been open to missions. We need wisdom so that we can obey you, but we can do it in a way that is effective and efficient. We come to you saying, teach us, speak to us, guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.